Hey, everybody, thanks for tuning in to another big episode of The Brothers Trek About. This week we discuss the city at the edge of forever. If you're watching the video, then we uh, cut in some of the shots from the IDW comic book from uh, Harlan's original script. So if you want to take a look at that, that's fun. But if you're just listening, well, you're going to have to imagine it, which, you know. You do all the time if you're listening to podcasts. Uh, I did want to bring up that uh, Harlan Ellison did die this year, June 27th, 2018. He was 84 years old. We get into a discussion real quick about whether or not he was uh, alive still when we recorded this. And when we recorded this, he was in fact still alive. But he just passed away oh so recently. And so big bucket of win, as Kevin Smith would always say to that guy. Without further ado, because this episode's long enough. The Brothers Trek about the city on the edge of forever. again where one creative will come up with this uh, amazing brilliant uh, script and then you know we find out the production company went and changed it for all sorts of reasons and most of the time I tend to lean toward the creative on this and say hey let the guy do what he wants let his vision be through but in this case I think we're going to find that that is not the fact. <laughs> so we'll get into it here in a minute. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. As always, my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin. And from over there in Houston is my brother, Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. There we go. All right. Well, let's get to it here. We're going to be, I think, beginning here another one of those epic long episodes because uh i have lots and lots to talk about when it comes to this a lot of it is going to be comparing what we saw on screen with what uh, howard ellison really wrote and the conflict that ensued because of it because boy oh boy when it comes to behind the scenes drama it does not get any more intense than this even till his like dying day which he still thinks that uh, Roddenberry did it wrong and so did everybody else on the staff. So uh, that's a long grudge to hold on to. 50 years. 50 years of grudge to hold on to. <laughs> uh, let's get started with this. Fun stuff. If we count all of the just treatments that Howard Ellison wrote for this script, there were 16 different versions of this script. And it took almost an entire year to produce. We kept kind of hearing all along the way, I kept trying to mention it, that... Uh, it was in the pipeline. Yes, this script has been in the pipeline. In fact, it was one of the first assignments given. It was given out March 16th, 1966, which was basically as soon as they found out that they were going to series. Like... Hey, let's get a bunch of scripts going. Like 10 months ago compared to where we are in airing it, right? <laughs> yeah, because uh, the last episode aired in February... Oh, no, the last episode shot in February, excuse me. And so, uh, yeah, here we are, like 11 months later. Yeah, basically going at it. 
crazy. Little background. At the time, Harland Ellison was 32 when he wrote this. Uh, one year before he had uh, come on to take this assignment, he had won the uh, Writers Guild of America Award for an episode of The Outer Limits. He also wrote scripts for Route 66, Burke's Law, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Man from Uncle. I mentioned those because I want to point out that he, he knew how to write for TV, right? This isn't right. like his first job. He wasn't just a novelist, as, as we saw in some of the other past episodes. Mm -hmm. He wasn't just a novelist who was coming in to try and write a right. Star Trek screenplay. Yeah, he had we, done it before. We had guys who had really interesting concepts because they were science fiction writers. Right. But then that whatever they had presented had to be adapted because we had a known crew. Yep. And we had a particular kind of a environment in which they had to work in. Yep. Well, it hold on to, be, to that thought. It had to be familiar. It had to be all these things. And so these guys who came in from outside would be like, well, this isn't the story I wrote. We're like, yeah, but this is Star Trek. Yes. He also wrote for The Voyage at the Bottom of the Sea, uh, which, of course, two got changed because of the show. Uh, it resulted in Ellison using the uh, the pseudonym Cordwainer Bird. <laughs> uh, he said the reason he did this was because when he was just starting out, there was a science fiction writer by the name of Cordwainer Smith. And uh, his real name was Paul Lindberger, but he used to work for the CIA, and uh, as did his wife. And so he couldn't write fiction under his real name. So he came up and invented this name, Cordwainer Smith. Ellison goes on to say, I had been reading the biography of the great evangelist Amy Semple McPherson and I had been toying around with the idea of what would happen if Kirk fell in love with a woman like that. Wouldn't it be interesting if they went back in time and then this woman who was so pure, good, and decent, who Kirk is so desperately in love with, had to die in order for time to be put right. And if he was truly in love with her, how heart-wrenching that would be. So this is the pitch he took to Roddenberry, right, right. which is similar to what ends up on screen. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you again. Hit it. So we get this amazing 30 to 45 seconds of the end, you know, where McCoy runs out and Kirk grabs him. And the shot we see is McCoy's back and Kirk's face. Yep. Right? And it's obvious McCoy is struggling, right? He's a doctor. Yeah. He wants to save the person. Yes. But there's Kirk who understands all the implications, all the implications, right? Mm -hmm. History, who she is and how lovable she is. He's holding back McCoy and you can just see this pain in his face, yeah. right? But he's doing what has to be done. And then they get back and he still looks depressed, right? Yeah. As Uhura says, Captain, the ship is on the community. They're ready to beam us up. And Kirk looks yeah. like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> beam, don't beam. <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah. And they beam up, and that's the end, right? And because mm -hmm. of episodic television, when we come back at the beginning of ne next episode, nothing has happened, right? He's totally fine. That's exactly right. And what we miss because TV wasn't arky in the way it is today, right, is a couple of episodes in which they continue to talk about City on the Edge of Forever. Right. And, you know, Kirk mulls it over and has to process it. And 
And, you know, Spock would be saying stuff like, we had to set the timeline right. I mean, it was the only thing to do. And, and Kirk's like, yeah, I know that. I, I, I'm totally with you. Yeah. But I did the thing. I did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it hurts. And, like, you know, it would, it would be McCoy who, once he understands the story, who could actually help him with the healing. Yeah. And, you know, be like, well. Exactly. You did it. That was the thing. You did no one, no one, no one else could. Of course, they were having problems. One of the reasons it took so long to bring this to script was that uh, Ellison was having a problem with the script, getting the work done. So Roddenberry put a put a desk in a room, and you know said, "Hey, just you know, come on to the set. Uh, you know, well, you can you can work here. We're all working. It's going to be great. You know, you can be part of the uh, environment. It's going to be great." The problem is, yeah, exactly. The problem is, is that, you know, inevitably, whenever they went looking to see, well, hey, I wonder how Harland is doing on that script. Well, let's go find out. They'd go into his office and he wouldn't be there. He'd be down on set, you know, hanging out uh, with, you know, Nimoy and Shatner and hanging out with them, having a good time. Yeah. Uh, at one point, John D. The thing is, if you've got a choice between doing work and hanging out with actors. Right. Hanging out with actors is more fun. Definitely, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame him at all. I get it. <laughs> so uh, at one point, uh, John D. Black says, uh, Harlan, you're supposed to be writing. What are you doing down here? And he said, uh, well, I came over here to have lunch with the company. So I said to him, Harlan, it's 3.30 in the afternoon. The company has lunch at 2. <laughs> oh, that, that story is funny when you don't know lunch was at 2. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Imagine lunch was at noon. <laughs> So, you know, he said, uh, hey, Harlan, can you please go back to your office and finish the story? So Harlan walks back, uh, go, uh, walks back with me, goes into his office, turns on a record, turns on a record. An hour later, he goes back in to check on him and he'd gone out the, he'd gone out the window. <laughs> so, you know, I understand. It's just, uh, it's just difficult. So, of course, you know, they finally get another script. It was only like five weeks late. So, of course, Howard Justman, you know, the producer, reads the script and, it's, and basically writes this memo. It's a big, long memo that's like, hey, hey, we can't afford to do the show as it presently stands, he says. What we have to do is find a way to retain all the basic qualities contained in the screenplay and then make it economically fe feasible for us to photograph graph it. So, again, Ellison begrudgingly writes the script, uh, rewrites the script, tries to make it happen. Oh, do we have that original script? Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I'm going to get into it. What I'm going to do is once we get into the bulk of the of the script, I'm going to go back and forth uh -huh. and start talking about here's a big change that was made. Here's why this is blah, 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 blah. Because that kind of thing, you know, especially if it's really good, right, is right. the kind of thing you could imagine as a <coughs> as a novelization in which it's like this novelization is, you know, is the original story that was written. Right. Before it was adapted to the screen. Now it was written for Star Trek and it goes, it could explain what, the, what you're re reading, but then you read it yeah. and you're like, Oh, this is amazing. But yeah, they can never, you know, <laughs> you could never do this on $87,000. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And trust me, we'll get into it. You'll hear some of the stuff and be like, okay, I get it. Two things, two, this was published in two different ways. Actually, the script, first of all, Howard Ellison wrote his side of the story basically right. in a book uh, called the city of the edge of forever. 
something, 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 something. So forgot. Right, Nelson, look it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can look it up. And like the first, the first like quarter of the book is his side of the story. And then the rest of the book is the screenplay. So you can read that. Plus IDW, uh, the comic book, who's got the rights right now to Star Trek, did a six Yeah, they, they, they're doing a, they did a six, a six issue uh, retelling of it as well, which uh, in the video version of this, I'm gonna be showing bits and pieces of uh, as we go through it. Because uh, there's, you know, some really things that you're just like, okay, yeah, get it. Again, I know why they couldn't have done this. It makes total sense now. Going down to the next, you know, rewrite, uh, Justman, uh, Justman says, although Harlan's writing is beautiful, it's just not Star Trek he has written. It's a lovely story for an anthology series or a feature. Now, this to me is the crux of it, right? As you were saying earlier, the biggest problem with Ellison's version and what we got is that it's just not Star Trek. So, for instance, his version, his version of it starts with one guy selling drugs called Jewel of the Sound to another member of the crew. I mean, right, that right there is just, you know, not, not Roddenberry Star Trek, right? Right. You got a guy who's, you got a, you got a, a pusher on, uh, on board who's, you know, selling drugs to uh, other guys. So... That in and of itself is like okay, that's not yeah. our Star Trek as we When know. Star Trek finally did its its drug issue in which people get addicted, it had to be a, a video game, and it wasn't. While well, you what you could watch the whole episode and go, yeah, addiction, it's a pain, right? It was mm -hmm. really like ultimately a plot for spies to learn about the Federation rather than just being about addiction. Yeah. Ryan Berry had this to say is that uh, the way he wrote it, Ellison wrote it, it would have cost uh, 200,000 more than I had to spend. He wrote in these huge crowd scenes and all sorts of things. I tried to get him to change it, but he just wouldn't. Justman also said that Gene did try to reason with Harlan, but uh, as did I, but we both struck out. And according to William Shatner, even he was sent to Ellison's home on Roddenberry's behalf to see if he could get the writer to cooperate. But I failed miserably, Shatner admitted. He said, because I can we had remember. a wonderful time. <laughs> a pool party ensued. <laughs> right. Uh, he said, I can remember getting inside the house and being yelled at throughout my visit. Harlan was very irate, and within a rather short period of time, he'd thrown me off his property, insane with anger at Justman, Roddenberry, and Kuhn. I was just the messenger, but he would try to kill me too. Now, here's Ellis, what Ellison said again. And this is interesting because this brings up uh, something else as well. I uh, said it all boiled down to Shatner not liking that Leonard had more lines, more and better lines than he did. He would count the lines of dialogue, literally. He sat on the sofa of my living room and did that. Uh, and he would always give some hyperbolic rationalization as to why Leonard should not have three lines on the page when he only had one. It never made any sense at all. But you got the sense after a very short time that he was either you were either going to make the changes his way or he would go back and rat you out to G. So there's two two interesting things in this to talk about. One of which is that I've been reading a lot online recently about how um, Shatner did do line counts. Like he mm -hmm. felt like, hey, I should have more lines than anybody else, you know. And so part of that you could chalk up to like, oh yeah, he's like, you know, being a, a prima donna. Um, thank you, being the prima donna and wanting more lines and more, you know. But also he's the hero of the show, right? Right. I mean, he's our. Captain Cook or 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 yeah, whoever. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah. 
Yeah. Yes, Horatio Hornblower. So, you know, he's the guy who's got to be the one to solve the problem. He's got to be the guy who's, you know, in charge all the I time. I also think that, you know, when various other scripts come down and the studio sends back, no, no, you know, Captain Kirk should be in this position. You know, we don't want Sulu having the love interest. We don't want McCoy having the interesting thing to do. No, this should be the captain. We should be invested right. in the captain. It's hard as the actor to not go, hey, yeah, it should be my role. I should be in the most interesting things. I should be the one doing the cool stuff. That would be great. Yeah. And the studio says that's the way it should be. Who am I to argue, right? You're, yep. go you're going to attach yourself to those ideas. You know, it's not like these are your ideas. The, I the ideas have you now. And it would be very difficult for any actor hearing those kinds of notes from the studio not to embrace that approach to the role. True. So DC Fontana had this to say, which is that the original script was a hell of a script. If it had been just an episode of The Outer Limits, it would have been great. But it's just not the best Star Trek script because it doesn't involve the characters as deeply as they should be involved in the episode. The love story was there, but you didn't even meet Edith Keeler until the third act another thing we'll get into which is interesting so uh at the time uh, the script editor was uh back in the day uh Carbostis. he uh, took out the drug dealer but then he added mccoy getting drugged uh mm -hmm. and then uh going down to the planet and of course ellison had this to say which is that Carbostis took a chainsaw to my script and screwed it up so badly that gene came back to me and asked me to do yet another rewrite for no money of course so this was Ellison's now revised final draft, as he categorized it, dated December 1st, which actually didn't arrive into the studio until December 19th. <laughs> it was then DC Fontana's turn to take, uh, take over it. She's like, I reported to work on my first day and walked right into a hornet's nest, and they gave me the city on the edge of forever. <laughs> Talked about being tossed a live grenade, she says. Yeah. Uh, among the changes, uh, DC Fontana invented Cordrazine, the drug that uh, McCoy puts him uh, into his temporary state of madness. You know, Again, that's Apparently, yeah. <laughs> we, we have to cut to Kirk to let us know. Right, right. That's that stuff. Well, and even McCoy himself says, I think I'll risk a few drops of cordrazine. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Kirk's got to hang a lampshade on it by going, hey, that's dangerous stuff. That's dangerous stuff, man. So I love this. Uh, Robert Justman at one point was talking about, sometimes I get the feeling that the only way I can achieve a great Star Trek segment on budget for 60 minutes under budget would be to have Mr. Spock playing a kazoo solo as Captain Kirk holds him in his arms while standing in a telephone booth. Ellison then reads DC Fontana's rewrite and says this of it. There are chunks of dialogue, like this big speech that Edith Keeler gives about how the future will, future everything will be wonderful because we'll have spaceships and be able to feed hungry people, which is precisely the kind of dopey utopian BS Roddenberry loved. So I know Gene has screwed around with the script a lot. Who said this? That was Howard Ellison. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, what I was doing was taking a famed evangelist, you know, Amy Sibyl McPherson, who, uh, you know, pretending that she was like L. Ron Hubbard. You take that, and that's who the character was supposed to be. When he altered her and made her what she was, I always thought it was just another mediocrity injected into my script. 
dun, dun, dun. Howard Ellison has lots of nice things to say to the people who wrote, <coughs> rewrote the script. On the day of filming, Robert Justman received a letter from Ellison's agent. It read, Mr. Ellison would like his credit on the Star Trek episode, City on the Edge of Forever, to be read as Cordwainer Bird. Of course, Gene didn't like that, right? Because his whole idea was, I want to get famous, yeah. you know, science fiction writers in here, and I want their names all over it, blah, blah, blah. So Ellison goes on to say that he basically threatened to blacklist me if I used the pseudonym. But I kept telling him I don't want my name on this now. So basically, because of the threats of back blacklisting, he uh, decided to let his name be put on it. So Joseph Peevney was hired to direct. You know, he has been like our like Mr. Go-To guy this whole uh, first season. He also had more experience with feature films than anybody else that uh, they had around. You know, they handed it to him. And he says, basically, I treated it like a motion picture. Joan Collins, of course, was most renowned was the most renowned guest star on Star Trek. She was 33 and had worked in TV and films in the early 1950s. Had played the female lead opposite of Ray Moland and the girl in the Red Velvet Swing. And she was billed above Richard Egon for the lead in Esther and the King and above Richard Bert Burton in The Sea Wife. So already coming into this episode, she was a uh, super, super popular, uh, popular actress and well-known. Sorry, John D'Agosta, who is the uh, the uh, uh, talent agent, the, the star wrangler, said, uh, I think it was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> Casting director? Casting director, thank you. Uh, she star said, wrangler. Uh, star wrangler on Star Trek. He said, I think it was a bit of a surprise that Joan Collins uh, was interested in doing a Star Trek. She was a very notorious actor, but again, I think it was based on the allure of the show. There were two shows in town that everybody wanted to do, Mission Impossible and Star Trek. Well, well, well I say everyone, meaning within certain limits. We couldn't get, say, John Wayne. Of course, we actually did get John Wayne. He did an episode of Lucy, but uh, Lucy made that phone call. <laughs> well, it, it's one thing when you're Lucy, right? <laughs> exactly, when you're that famous. Well, it's also... Acting with Lucy as opposed to working on Lucy's project. Yeah. That doesn't involve actual Lucy. You know, you know, you'd almost see that episode in which for Lucy to get John Wayne to come in and be like the planetary governor, she has to be like the governor's wife. Yeah, or something. Or, uh, or the political <laughs> opponent. They could have a scene of debate. Oh, we should invite the Federation in. They could protect us and give us technology. No, our own life ways are more important. Why should we sacrifice that for the Federation? And it's John Wayne and Lucille Ball arguing, and Captain Kirk and Ben Spock are just standing there going, damn, we have no lines in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we right. take, right? Right, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, that's all I got right now for the background stuff. There's plenty of other stuff I got coming out on the other side and even in the middle of this. But I say we let's get to it. And let's compare these two episodes. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So uh, at the beginning of our episode, uh, we open on the Enterprise. Sulu is at the helm, and uh, something seems to be rocking the ship. We don't quite know what it is. Uh, everything isn't working as it should. 
Suddenly the helm blows up and Sulu is knocked unconscious. Uh, Spock tells us about the scientific importance of passing through uh, ripples in time. It's apparently ripples in time that uh, uh, are making all of uh, the rocking on the ship happen. Something or someone on the planet is causing the ripples that roll through space. Dun, dun, dun. McCoy arrives to give Sulu the, the Cortrazine. Uh, Kirk, uh, you know, as we said, tells him it's tricky stuff. But uh, McCoy pulls it off with a plum until they hit that second ripple. Dun, dun, dun. McCoy now accidentally gives himself a full hypo of the Cortrazine. Now let's pause there. Let's go back now and tell you how Ellison's teaser starts. He makes a point, uh, sorry, before we get there, uh, Ellison makes a really good point about uh, this version of the script, which is, um, but no, Gene preferred having an accomplished ship surgeon act in such a bonehead manner that he injects himself with a deadly drug. Yeah, sure, you're a sensational plotter and writer, Gene. <laughs> like, okay. Back to our version. McCoy pops out screaming mad. Not mad like angry, but like mad like the Hatter. He stands yeah. screaming. One of the beautiful things about, you know, it, it is goofy, right? There's a fridge logic right. problem. To, and we, we talk about that. We pointed out. We, we have fun with it. But giving your own actors, right, the, the ability to say, all right, uh, D, we want you to, you know, you've rejected yourself with this. We want you to go mad, look crazy, and run around like, okay, that McCoy doesn't do that normally. That's a, it's going to be something new for me. Yeah, give me, I want right. to try that out and, and give it my best shot. And, uh, and he gets to do that, and he gets to be crazy, and he, he runs off. And, you know, if our people always have to be the super competent, you know, and nobody ever does anything bizarre. You never ask why they were doing that. Then those actors don't get, uh, you know, it's like we invite people on, they act crazy. And we just say, well, I'm not a doctor. Or I'm a doctor, not a, you know, psych psychiatrist, Jim. Psychiatrist, right, exactly. Your human emotions seem to be, <laughs> you know, this is all our, our main characters would ever get to do. Right. Uh, so as you said, he stands up screaming, killers, murderers, and pushes everyone aside and gets on the turbo lift and runs downstairs. Okay, so now let's take our step back and talk about Ellison's opening here. Like I said, he had this crewman by the name of Lebec buying drugs from a guy named Beckwith. And like I said, these uh, drugs were called the Jewels of the Sound. Lebec takes the drug, and he finds himself then suddenly on the bridge being reprimanded by Spock for being uh, severely off his game. So Spock sends him off duty. And uh, Lebec finds out that four hours have passed since he had met with Beckwith, and he's lost all that time. Dun, dun, dun. So back to our version now. Captain's Log, uh, we don't have a star date, but we uh, find out little is known about the effects of Cartrazine or how it will affect McCoy, who we now see sneaking into the transporter room and knocking that poor, poor transporter chief unconscious. How many times does that happen, right? That poor guy. Uh, you don't McCoy want to security detail on that guy. Yeah, they should keep one on him. McCoy then beams himself down to the planet. So now in Ellison's version, Lebec threatens to uh, go to Kirk and turn Beck within. He's like, uh, you can't be selling drugs. Look what you did to me. You made me look like a fool. Like, I'm not going to be looking like a fool by myself. 
So uh, Lebec turns and uh, heads off. Well, Beckwith then at this point picks up something off of uh, the counter, slams it into Lebec's head, and kills him in the middle of the Enterprise. Again, we're already off of our utopian view of what the Starfleet crew is like, right? Right, right, yeah. That's yeah. strike two right there. We got a, we got one crew member killing another crew member because he w doesn't want him to rat him out about selling drugs. But what we are setting up here, which is important for Ellison's script, is that Beckwith is a bad guy, right? He's a bad guy. Uh, there were witnesses to this that happened, so Beckwith is found guilty, and Kirk sentences him to be taken down to the nearest uninhabited planet and executed by firing squad. That planet, circling a dying sun, is a dead world with a time vortex. Okay, back to our version. We find out uh, McCoy has sent himself down into the heart of the time disturbance. So in... Uh... Go ahead. As I mentioned, one of the things we want to do is we want to give the good stuff to our characters, right? We get notes from the studio saying to do this, but we also, we, you know, we have an, an opportunity for something cool to happen. We want to give it to our people. Mm -hmm. Instead of having all this stuff happening with characters we don't know, we've never seen. Right. Because it would have been easy. And there may have actually been a version of the script that came out in which they just go, well, we've had those crazy traders in the jumpsuits, you know, on the episode, on the show before. We know those kinds of guys exist. Some of those guys can be like mud. Those could have been, this could have been on a star base. This could have been some guys like that. And then, you know, the Enterprise is supposed to merely ferry these, you know, traders or whatever to wherever they're supposed to go or, and some guy decides to try out his drugs. Right. You know, so it would have been easy within the Star Trek world to do that story with the subtle change of just we're not going to make Beckworth a crew member. Right. We're going to make him one of these shady you know, merchant guys who up till now have not been Star Trek kind of material, right? They're not members of Starfleet. Whether they're right. miners, we've seen you know, a variety of kind of miners. We've seen, you know... Uh, guys whose bulkheads collapse the minute they leave the Enterprise. We've seen all kinds of these fellas. Yeah. And we've seen Mud, who's a, a dealer in drugs. That's true. So, That's true. In fact, if we wanted to blow the budget, we could have had uh, <laughs> we could have had Mud being the dealer. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. He's just there for a few minutes, but we paid for him. <laughs> so Kirk sends his away team down to the planet to try and find a uh, good old McCoy there. Uh, they uh, find the ruins that go on forever, as Kirk says. Something worth pointing out here because, well, yeah, let me ask you first and then I'll tell you what I think. What do you think of the actual guardian itself, uh, how it's uh, depicted? The, the guardian has been the guardian for so long. I don't, it's hard for me to like have an opinion on it. Because yeah, no, I see that. It's just always been the way it is. I mean, I think I I see that. And I'm like, well, that's the Guardian of Forever. That's what it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. But I think in that way, for me, I think in that way, that's what makes it perfect. You know what I mean? It just it just is what it is. It's it's a big like rune. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and which is the way Ellison describes it in the script is as a rune. Now the problem was that Matt Jeffries, who we know is you know one of the big uh, 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 production designers on the show, was actually sick 
when they had to develop all of the sets for this. So it uh, came to uh, came to another guy, the art director named Roland Brooks, who didn't know what a rune was, and he went to the dictionary. It says he had a couple of martinis. That's who. Sorry, we don't know that for sure. It's before, the 50s or the okay. 60s. It could be. Before you know, I Mad Men. Dictionary. I always like to have a few martinis. <laughs> exactly. So uh, he got to the word ruin before he got to the word rune and just stuck with that. I don't know. Like, I think it works. It totally works. It looks like something ancient. Yeah. You know, but it also looks very, um, you know, magical or, you yeah. know, from another world. So it was great. But apparently Matt Jeffries walked on set and said, what the hell is this? That's so, right. That. That's why you always have to remember the advice that I learned watching Yes Minister. One day out of the office, the next day out of office. <laughs> so you, you can't take off because you're sick. you got to always show up. That's right. They find the Guardian, and Spock says of it, this is impossible by any science that I understand. Which is funny, because that's basically his way of saying, it's science, Jim, but not as we know it. That's right. Not as you know it, Captain. We see McCoy is hiding behind some of the ruins as uh, Scotty and his away team look, look for him. It's a machine beyond any of our, me uh, our mechanics. That's what he says. That's what I wrote down. I don't know if that's exactly what he says. But there you go. Now comes the question. This is, this is another one of those big things where you're like, how do you do this? on a TV budget, okay? So with Beckwith in tow, so we're going back to Ellison's version now, sorry. With Beckwith in tow, they follow the readings and soon find themselves on a mountaintop near a great city that appears to be uninhabited. A city on the edge of forever. Dun, dun, dun. They encounter a group of men, but such men as explorers from Earth have never known. Ellison here describes a nine-foot-tall men as old as the chill and the dying sun cast shadows upon the empty planet. These are the guardians of forever. How do you do that? How do you create a city? How do you, they then go into said city and then find nine foot tall men on a $180,000 budget in 1960? You know what I mean? Well, especially because they, you now the idea of doing that, you'd be like, well, it's, we're going to use camera tricks that we've actually worked out quite well. Yep. You know, with the foreshortening and the, so, you know, if we want, uh, what's his name? The elf. Uh, Farrell, Will Farrell. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we want him to look gigantic compared to these elves. We're just going to, you know, sit him like six feet in front of everybody else and use camera yeah. angles and, and lens focus and everything to make it look like they're all sitting right next to each other. I thought you were going to do Ian McKellen from uh, Lord of the Rings. That, you could thing. do that. Exactly the same thing, except I think with Elf, because it wasn't Lord of the Rings, it didn't have a budget of, you know, 200 million. Yeah, true. And it really had to be done with, with optics rather than yeah. special effects. Like, there was an awful lot of green screening going on with Ian McKellen. True. Famously. Whereas with Will Ferrell... Because in the extras, they'll show you. They just like, we're going to show you from a different angle. This is what's going on. And there's Will over there. And there's everybody else over here. And the camera's yeah. over there. <laughs> you just do that kind of stuff where, like, they're always having to stand closer to the camera than the cast. 
But even in Lord of the Rings, you know, there was, uh, there was you know, the scene when they're on the cart. It's that thing where, you know, Ian McKellen's sitting right here and Elijah Wood sitting way back here. Uh, you know, some of the scenes they used, you know, little people standing next to, you know, Gandalf or vice versa. They used a giant standing next to, you know, little Elijah Wood. So, I mean, they're, they use forced perspective as well in Lord of the yeah. Rings. It wasn't just that. It was oh, yeah. all a comic. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. And then yes, they would do things like making sets that were, you know, 60% uh, scale so that Ian McKellen could walk in and bang his head around. Yeah. And then yep. they build a full size set and all the other characters would walk around in the exact same set. And you'd be like, well, clearly Ian McKellen is you know, <laughs> twice the size of uh, Mr. Frodo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that would uh, also be no problem for the Star Trek budgeteers, right? <laughs> We're going to yeah, two versions exactly. of every set. Two versions of every set. First, this nine foot tall guy stands next to it. And then the captain stands next to a wholly different version, which is identical to it. Don't worry. Right. <laughs> There's no budget problems here. Making, you know, Lord of the Rings was so expensive. It was, you know, the kind of thing that was, it could have totally bankrupted, you know, that studio. Yeah. In the same way that United Artists was bankrupted. By, I forget what movie bankrupted UA. Oh, uh, Heaven Can Wait? Yeah, okay. Uh, so new leadership agreed to back Heaven's Gate and the pet project of director Michael Canino overran its budget and cost $44 million. This led to the resignation of Albeck. United Artist uh, recorded a major loss for that year due it almost entirely to this fiasco. It destroyed UA's reputation with Transamerica and the greater Hollywood community. However, it may have saved United uh -huh. Artist's name as UA's final head before the sale, Stephen Bach wrote in his book, The Final Cut, that there was talk about renaming United Artists to Transamerica Pictures. Oh my goodness. And they, they're the ones who already owned MGM. So after that, you get a lot of MGM United Artists. Yeah, so it was uh, Heaven's Gate. But yeah, so in in the late 70s, going over by $44 million over budget to make a 325-minute movie. Led to uh, an entire studio going down the tubes, basically. Wow. So uh, back to our version. While Kirk and Spock talk, about, uh, talk to the Guardian, the hunt for McCoy continues. Uh, McCoy continues to hide out. The gateway shows us many things from Earth's past. But then suddenly, McCoy is found, and Spock gives him uh, the Vulcan hand pitch. It knocks him out. Strangely compelling, says Kirk, as he watches the time fly by. Yeah, yeah. Spock takes some readings as history flies by with his tricorder. Then McCoy runs into the, jumps up and runs into the Guardian. Oh my gosh! We find out Kirk's present is changed due to the changing events that McCoy was a part of. I, I the love Enterprise is gone that, and they're totally Kirk jumps at McCoy, right? And you get to see him land in the dirt, having missed yep. him. And he, he looks disappointed, like, oh man, I almost had him. Yep. That was good stuff. It's great. So uh, we go to commercial. During this commercial break, let's catch ourselves up with Harlan script. So Harlan script is very uh, front loaded. There's lots of stuff that happens early on. So as, a, as our script or as our version goes on, I'm going to back off more and more of Harlan's just because less and less uh, changes are made. But 
Kirk and the landing party immediately find, uh, beam back to the ship at this point, find out if their lives or if their enterprise is there or if it's been changed. They discover that the starship is no longer the enterprise, but instead a pirate ship manned by cutthroats. Kirk and his men are able to take control of the transporter room and lock the, marau the marauders out. So basically he beams up there and there's a, you know, it's like a pirate ship now, right. which is it fun. I think that's a really, that's really interesting, you know, a little like parallel universe stuff going on. Well, it's exactly what it is. It's the mirror universe, right? Yeah. Pretty much what happens at this point. Kirk then leaves some of the crew aboard the pirate ship, locking the pirates out of the transporter room to make sure that they are not followed down to the planet and to the Guardian. It's a bunch of no-name security guys, except for Rand, who's there, proving she can hold her own. Kirk asks her, uh, keep the pirate guys at bay? Can you keep them out of the transporter room? She asks, for how long? Indefinitely, he says. So it's kind of fun to see Rand take a proactive role in this version. Now, going back to our version. Back at it! Spock, with his tricorder, thinks that he can figure out exactly the time in which McCoy jumped in and jump in after him. Kirk tells the crew that uh, if they fail, that each of them then has to try and jump through and stop McCoy. Better to be stuck in the past than stuck on a planet with no future. Back to Harlan's script. Uh, the two men are told by the Guardians that they are seeking a young woman named Edith Kessler, not Keith. Not Edith Keeler, who was supposed to be run down by a moving van. Beckwith, though, has somehow prevented Keeler from dying, and in order to right the time, they must they must stop him from doing this. So, therefore, in Allison's story, Kirk already falls in love with a woman he knows from the beginning has to die. So that's another one of the big differences in the story. Back to our version. Kirk and Spock arrive back in the 1930s in the Great Depression. They quickly realize that they are uh, inadequate, <laughs> yeah, inadequately dressed. Spock's ears would be most difficult to explain. Kirk then steals uh, some clothes for them, but is immediately caught by the police. We get this like funny scene here. You're a police officer. I recognize the traditional accoutrements. Was saying you'll have no trouble explaining it. My friend is obviously Chinese. I see you've noticed the ears. They're actually easy to explain. Perhaps the unfortunate accident I had as a child. The unfortunate accident he had as a child. He caught his head in a mechanical rice picker. Were the music caps? Yeah, the music tells us here it's supposed to be hilarious. It's like this uh, Disney-fied version of the opening theme. I don't know if you noticed. You probably didn't. Nope. Since you <laughs> I can't <Disney>. hear music. <laughs> but it's funny. It's like... Uh... <laughs> I can't even do an impression of it, but just oh, go back I'll and listen to it. It's, to listen. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a Disney-fied version of the opening theme. It's pretty great. So it's also funny, too, because in this scene where we have Kirk explaining Spock's ears, you know, and Spock sort of 
feeding him like, well, you must tell him about the accident and all that <laughs> oh, stuff. Yeah. The rice it, picker incident. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it feels very Star Trek four to me. You know yeah. what I mean? Right, right. It's, it's like the scene, it's like all those scenes in, in you know, modern day, well, in 1988, you know, uh, San Francisco where... Double dumbass on you. Speaking. Yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah, and there's a scene just like that where Kirk almost gets run over, you know, and he's like, oh, hey, sorry, okay, didn't realize. I'm, I'm looking for the Russian West. For the, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the nuclear vessels. <laughs> That's right. It's amazing. <laughs> they then uh Vulcan hand pitch the cop and then uh run basically around the block and back into that alley i don't know if you paid attention to notice that but they ran into the same alley and uh like they're running this circle it's very yeah. keystone cops <laughs> absolutely uh but they do find themselves this time in the basement of the missionary dun, dun, dun. So now we're gonna we're gonna pause here talk about Ellison's script again because uh some different stuff happens when uh, they land, when they land on the planet. So first, I'll tell you about this. So uh, when they arrive, uh, we see a man on a pedestal who's sort of uh, aggravating this crowd, right? Talking about foreigners coming in to take all of our jobs. They then see Spock, and they're like, "Well, there's one now." And so uh, that's when they run away from that group of people and find themselves then into the uh, missionary or into the uh, basement of the mission. Uh, and the writing here takes a turn, too. You'll see this is also uh, very different from the way it is in uh, our version of... Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't imagine that Ellison would, would include the Keystone Cops, you know, bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, uh, that was Gene Kuhn, definitely. <laughs> you know, uh, Star Trek has always had a sense of humor. Right. And, oh, uh, I think same more than that. <laughs> so uh you know it's always had this thing where they they would do bits that were funny and and it wouldn't be out of character but it would be a different kind of a theme a different kind of you know mood but we know that these characters could be funny <laughs> yes yes all right so this is kind of a little bit of what Harlan Ellison wrote, they escape into the basement of the missionary, as I said, and uh, we'll see how it goes here. Spock starts off by saying, Barbarian world. Kirk. They were hungry and afraid. As violent as any aboriginal world we have ever landed on. All right, all right, but we're safe now. I would call this anything but safe. Barbarians. It's weird, because I don't know how to read Spock with an exclamation point, but that's the second one he's given uh, Spock already. Kirk. You're an accomplished ethnologist, Spock. You know all races go through a violent phase. My race never languished in such ignorant behavior. For thousands of years, we went to space in peace. Earthmen came with all of this behind them. And that's why you hit space 200 years after us? Are you trying to tell me that Earthmen uplifted our race? Tell me that, 
and use Beckwith as an example of nobility. I should have left you for the mob. Which is perhaps an overreaction on Kirk's part. Spock is taken aback. I spoke out of turn. Captain. Mr. Spock, you're picking up dirty habits, hanging around with Earthmen and their emotionalism. And then they change the subject. So anyway, you can see there that that is like very, very different, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, a, again, a, a, an idea of, of Starfleet that we don't have. You know, the Vulcans calling Earthmen barbarians. Kirk, I mean, defending the human race, but again, not always seeing the best of, you know, humanity. Right. There's also more tension between the characters, and it's not inconceivable. I mean, you can tell that Ellison did his homework hanging out on the set, right? Mm -hmm. He knew the kinds of things that were... That we were that we could understand and see, but we always had you know the Vaseline on the lens giving us yeah. the the warm glow of the Federation and and the interactions between our characters. Yes, uh, this is the darker, also, grittier version. Yes, exactly, exactly. Here they are not found by Edith like they are in our version, but they are found by the janitor. So again. They're just pushing back the amount of, or he's just pushing back the amount of time before Edith and Kirk get together. You know what I mean? So it's really not even in in Ellison's version. Halfway through the script, three almost three quarters of the way up through the script before he finally, uh, before they finally meet for the first time. So again, not even giving enough time for the show to build into their romance. Back to our version, Kirk and Spock uh, get to changing their clothes finding all that they need, including a hat for Spock. Here they discuss the currents of time, which I thought was really interesting. You know, they were hoping they were hoping to find, you know, like, are we going to be able to even find McCoy? Is that even going to be possible? And here Spock is like, well, hopefully, you know, the, the, the eddies and the time currents are all leading the same way. So hopefully the eddies led us to the same point that they led McCoy to. That's his hope. Sort of convenient storytelling, but we'll let it go. Kirk says, uh, hey, you know, maybe there's a way we can get the tricorder up and running. And, uh, oh, because Spock mentions about the recording again, how he recorded through time. So he's like, maybe we could get the uh, the tricorder up and reading and you might be able to dig into a little deeper and find out exactly what we're looking for. We don't even know what that is. Uh, Spock replies, in this zinc-plated vacuum-tubed culture? But then Kirk sort of like tricks him into building the computer anyway. Oh, yeah, you know, you're right. It's probably too difficult for you to do, Spock. Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> this is basically what he says there. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So suddenly Edith comes down the stairs and uh, Kirk is immediately smitten. We know because the violins are playing it, telling us so. She asks why they're down there. Kirk lies. She sees through it. So he eventually tells her the truth that uh, the police were after them because they had stolen the clothes uh, because they were out of money. And so they decided to hide out in the basement. Edith then hires them for 15 cents an hour, which is really nice of her. And so uh, they begin work there in the uh, basement. So in just another fine example of uh, why Ellison's script was not very Star Trek as we know it. Uh, there's a scene in his script, Spock finds a job in a restaurant 
And uh, his boss, and I'm quoting here, calls him Chinese, which is very uh, politically correct. But uh, the boss tries to shorten him on his pay. He was supposed to make like ten fifty for the day, and uh, the boss tries to pay him nine fifty. So Spock like grabs his wrist and starts like you know basically breaking it before uh, the guy gives up and uh, gives him the money that he's owed. Again, not very uh, Vulcan or uh, Starfleet like. It's Trek, so uh, now as we know it, now as we know it, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that night, uh, back to our version. That night at dinner, Edith tells kind of uh, is sort of preaching to the crowd of people in the room talking about how the future is going to be so amazing it's all that stuff ellison didn't like you know about the future being able to feed everybody and uh, all of that stuff she also then gets kirk uh, a place to stay in her building conveniently uh we guess a few days have passed we cut to uh spock and kirk's flop house spock's computer is coming along made out of stone knives and bear skins as he calls it <laughs> Edith pops in. Nobody likes to pop in. Nobody. Nobody likes to pop in. But she didn't find them work for 22 cents an hour. So, uh, of course, Spock and Kirk go. They also decide to steal some clock tools that they see some guys using at the mission, which Edith quickly finds out about. We don't know how. And she calls them out on it, but uh, Kirk, you know, talks his way out of it by walking her home. It's funny. What he says is like, hey, Mr. Spock says he's going to return him. He's going to return him. I don't know what else you need. So, uh, <laughs> Edith here now uses her intuition to sort of like feel like, like feel Kirk out and tell him that he's not from this place and that Spock seems like he wow. belongs. Like That's obvious. I yes. mean, you, know, you so you can, I live in Houston, right? Right. You walk down the street and you see these homeless guys, these guys who are the guys who would be in her mission, right? Right. They're like peeing on the street and you get too close to when they, they smell like they've never bathed in their lives. And yeah. Kirk doesn't seem like one of those guys. One, he probably either has no smell or he smells like, you know, whatever Axe body spray in the 23rd century smells like, right? Right. <laughs> you know, he's, he's clean. He's, you know, put together. He's, he's well-educated. All of this comes across. You're like, he almost feels more like he's a con man. Like he's a, like a professional, you know, grifter who got off his game in some way and had to run from the law. Yeah. You know, he's, he's like Andy Dufresne, right? He's like, well, you don't, you don't, you're not like the other guys here. That's what she's sensing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he walks her home. Now, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, we're back in Mayberry. And uh, <laughs> we are. And in this scene, they walk by Floyd's Barbershop. Oh, it even man. says, Floyd's Barbershop. I got to go back and look for that. Yeah, it's pretty funny. He walks by Floyd's Barbershop, and then the radio store is right next to that one. So it's pretty funny. Not a lot happens in the scene, so we go back to Spock. He gets the tricorder working here. He's able to uh, tap into information from the time stream that uh, was recorded on his tricorder. He finds out what's happening. You see the headline, social worker killed. Go ahead. I'll introduce my, my thing here. So there is this, this conundrum. It is known as the trolley problem in okay. ethical philosophy. 
the trolley problem goes like this. There's a train coming down a track, and it's going to kill five people. You can divert the train onto a different track to save them, but there's another workman on the other track, and you'll certainly kill him. Do you pull the lever? Right. Right? And lots of people say no, because it requires you to, like, actively kill one person. Whereas if you do nothing, it's kind of like, well, I, I, you know, I'm not responsible for the original scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And then there's versions of it that make it more like, would you, like, the, there's a fat man version where you push a guy in front of the train and his, his girth or weight is significant to uh, stop the train or slow it down enough that, that it doesn't kill the five people. Right, so this episode is basically the trolley problem in which you've got the whole future, so much more than five men, right? You've got millions of people. Uh, however, right, worse that's it would... Spock says later. That's yeah. Spock says later. You're going to save millions who, millions who did not die before or will die now. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's the trolley problem with way, way, way more weight on one side of the equation mm -hmm. in which... Kirk basically has to divert the, the eddies of history so that uh, she gets killed rather than all the other people. So I, I watched the episode, I'm like, oh, it's a classic trolley problem. <laughs> of course you do, of course you do. <laughs> so they do find out the information here. Uh, when uh, Kirk comes home, then we see the headline, FDR and Edith Keeler, that they had conferred. Spock now believes that Edith is the focal point of the time stream that they were brought to. And Bones. Where, does Bones kill her? Or does Bones save her? Do we know? And it's interesting who they give the, the, uh, the possibilities to in this scene, right? Because Kirk is the hopeful, right? Kirk says, uh, but does Bones, uh, does Bones save her? Or Spock the pragmatic who's like, uh, or does he kill her? Dun, dun, dun. Either way, Edith Keeler must die. Commercial. Going back to Spock the Pragmatic and Kirk the Optimist. Yeah. I can't recall if we have actually heard him say something like this, but of course he'll become famous in uh, Star Trek II for ending with you know, the needs of the... Throughout Star Trek II, he'll say things like, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yes. It becomes the justification for what he does in his own particular trolley problem there at the end. And... You know, but he has been reasoning in a way similar to that, but without the beautiful condensation into a crystalline, you know, slogan. Yeah. And it would be easy for him to go, well, the needs of the many, I weigh the needs of the few. You know, she has to die. Whereas Kirk is the optimist to be like, no, there's another way. Exactly. So uh, back from commercial, we see this guy named Rat here who uh, takes a milk bottle from out in front of the house. Suddenly, Bones appears magically, freaks him out. Cut to Kirk and uh, Edith, who are uh, bonding some more over her ideas of space travel, which he enjoys. Yeah, I love the guy, you know, So I was watching this with Charlie, right? Uh-huh. And everything takes place in the 30s. So to... People watching in the 60s, this was their childhood, right? right? right, right. They remember milk deliveries and 
you know, all the stuff that's going on here. Whereas to me, it's part of the TV past, right? It's part right. of the movie past. Um, I don't remember milk deliveries, but I remember when milk deliveries was a thing that even as a kid, you know, it was just like, well, I guess we don't, you know, it's like the old phones and party lines and some of this other stuff that, that like we would never have experienced in Naperville, but right. we moved alone and we did get a party line. <laughs> but, you know, it was like, you, you, it was something that happened right before you and you knew about it. Yeah. But for Charlie, this was so ancient, like, so yes. like I, you had to explain the milkman, right? Because yeah. she, she, you know, she wasn't brought up with, let's say, Looney Tunes cartoons in which they have a milkman. And it's yeah. like, well, I don't have a milkman, but Bugs Bunny has a milkman. <laughs> you <can do> it. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yes, exactly. So we had to explain the milk. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Back to Bones now, who's still crazed as hell. Paranoid, I guess is the better word. He doesn't believe that it's Earth. He says it's all a museum. And then he starts thinking about the hospitals of the time where they sew people up like garments. And then he uh, collapses. Then Rat takes his favor and accidentally kills himself. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he got his quick judgment for stealing that milk, don't you think? <laughs> or, the, or stealing the phaser. <laughs> yeah, or both. Right, exactly. Back in Kirk and Spock's flop house, we see the computer has grown in size. Spock needs two more days. Kirk says, but I must know if she lives or if she dies. Bones then wanders into the mission, and Edith immediately takes him into the back and uh, to a cot in the back room, where he just misses Spock. Oh, yeah. yeah. Three more seconds. It all been solved. Back in their flop, they find the changes that were made to history after Bones saves Keeler. A growing pacifist movement slows the U.S. from entering World War II. Germany has time to create its giant underwater experiments. Okay. And win <laughs> the Second World War because they developed the A-bomb first. Like, they couldn't have just skipped to the A-bomb part, right? Like, why the giant underwater experiments? And all of this because McCoy came back to stop Keeler from dying. So there's yeah. another okay. ethical question, right? This is the, if you okay. could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you do it? Right. Now, we've got a spin on it, right? A little bit of a twist because Keeler is the woman who prevents us from stopping Hitler. <laughs> right. Right. So why would you go back and kill her? <laughs> would you kill back the woman who goes back and kills Hitler? <laughs> That's right. So there's a woman who prevents us from, from stopping Hitler. Do you kill her yeah. so that we can stop Hitler? Yes. Ridiculous. And by the way, she's lovely. <laughs> And sweet and kind and nice. All the values she espouses are your values. <clears throat> Articulating it at a moment in which, you know, it's almost, you wish you kind of could have convinced her. Well, actually, what you're articulating should be our post-war dream. But first, got to yeah. stop Hitler. And what do we get for stopping Hitler? Go. Your vision. But first, got to do this. We got it. We got to do it. I'm sorry to say it must happen. Kirk here says that, I believe I am in love with Edith Keeler, he says. To which Spock replies, Jim. Hey, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, really uh, somber here. 
So uh, here Spock says, Jim, Edith Keeler must die. Which is great because this does two things, right? First of all, it not only uh, firmly reestablishes what the premise is from here on out, right. but it's also the perfect line to send us to commercial, as always. So that's nice. Well, while you're doing that, I'll say, uh, um, Hit it. we've noted your motives, we've noted your feelings, you must protect the future, Miss Keeler must die. <laughs> <laughs> must die, must die, Miss Keeler must die. <laughs> Okay, so uh, way back when we were talking about um, what little girls are made of, you, uh, we talked a little bit about how Kirk is always thought of being a, like a Lothario, you know? He's always in there kissing the girls, making them cry or whatever. But it's funny because so far we see how, how rarely that's actually come to fruition, right? Right. In what little girls are made of. He kisses the robot who's attracted to him, but it's ultimately, you know, to try and really confuse, confuse the robot, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, conscious of the king, he starts his relationship with that guy's daughter. But he's kind of working, and I mean, they're both kind of working an angle in that way, right? Yeah. You know? So, <clears throat> what's really interesting about this episode then is that this is really the first episode where Kirk actually falls for somebody. You know, where, where there's actually some kind of emotion involved in it. Uh, as I've said, the rest of these has always been there's another reason for him, you know, uh, wanting the girl to like him. So. I thought that was interesting that, you know, we mentioned that. And so here we are with actually the, what, 26th episode of the season. And it's the first time he's actually really fallen in love and with uh, some random girl. Back to it. McCoy wakes up in uh, Edith's flat. There's this funny scene here with Bones unsure whether or not he's really, like, lost it or if he's, th he's unconscious, blah, blah. It's a really funny scene I enjoyed. Yeah, is it a fever dream or? <laughs> yeah, exactly. After a night out, Kirk sees Edith at the top of the stairs. She almost falls down the stairs, but he catches her. Because he's, he's who he is. Exactly. She says, I could have broken my neck. You know, so here, Kirk now sees that uh, he may not be able to stop her from dying, right? Interestingly enough, this moment was created by Robert Justman who uh, added this moment because he thought it would add another level of the, you know, the real worry of whether or not, yeah, the problem, whether or not Kirk could be able to save her or not. Back to it. Bones in another scene with Edith. It's a cute scene of them kind of bonding. She ends up by saying that her young man is taking her to see, uh, taking her to the movies to see a Clark Gable movie. To which Bones is like, uh, uh, who? I know what a movie is, but I don't know who this Clark Gable is guy you speak of. So then Spock here then chastises Kirk. You know, he's basically saying like, look, you, uh, you may not be able to do it. You should, you know, be careful. You should watch yourself. You got to make sure that, uh, yeah. But we don't know how it's going to happen, says Kirk. He's upset. He's frustrated. Mm -hmm. But we can start, this is like, this is the moment when all the pieces start coming together, right? Everybody's moving in. Um, you know, Kirk has his realization. Bones is feeling better. We're slowly grinding towards, you know, it's all coming to a head. Which is the, the thing that. that I think makes this possible. What do you mean? Well, so when merely caught with the instance of that Edith could hurt herself, right, Kirk responds to, you know, damsel in distress and he rescues yeah. her, right? Whereas moments later, he'll see McCoy and he'll realize, oh, this is. This is when stuff's going to happen. 
And when danger yeah. happens, he's like, he switches gears. Yep. Because he realizes McCoy is here, I must act. Kirk and Edith are out on their date. They cross the street and almost get hit twice here crossing the street. Uh, she then names drop McCoy. And Kirk says, what? McCoy, Leonard McCoy, stay here, stay. And then he runs off to find Spock. He yells after Spock, who is walking in the other direction. And then McCoy steps out of the uh, steps out of the doorway. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they all hug each other. Oh, hey, hey, it's good to see you. Uh, Spock arrives just as McCoy comes out, and they all hug. And Kirk course, then sees Edith. It's great, because yeah. we see Edith, and she's got this look of like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, how, how, do they, how do they all know each other? That's right. And she's kind of like, <laughs> so, you know, she's fallen for this. What is he? He's a con man. He's some kind of, you know, Andy Dufresne character who's well-educated, well-put together, smells nice. And yet he's stealing clothes off a clothesline and stealing some, you know, tools. But he's, he's not a bad guy. He's not right. malevolent. You know, he's a mystery, and he's got this friend who has, as she points out, like, well, I can see you in the future doing wonderful things, and like, a, where do you see uh, Mr. Spock? Always at your side. That's yeah. where he belongs. So, and then, oh, wait a minute, this other nice man that I just met said weird things, and obviously it was out of place, too, uh, who's a surgeon, but was, like, saying, he was all, he was all kinds of crazy, right? Yeah. Didn't know if he was in a fever dream. It was so out of place. And you three guys all know each other. And I, <laughs> I gotta know what's going on. I gotta go exactly. up and ask you guys. And, like... and here she goes, crossing the street, but apparently never learned to look both ways. Well, no, she's because... thinking about these three guys in this amazing yeah. coincidence. Stuck in her head. Kirk then sees her walk into the middle of the street, and he starts to go, but Spock yells, No! And then Bones starts to run out, but Kirk bear hugs him and stops him. Edith is hit by the truck. Kirk's eyes are closed. He can't even look. Yeah. McCoy is livid and asks the question, do you know what you just did? Spock calmly says, he knows, doctor. He knows. Back to the Guardian. <laughs> and that's the, three the, the trolley problem, right? He knows. Right, exactly. Did. Yeah. Back to the Guardian, the three return. As you said, Uhura says, Sir, the Enterprise is back. Let's get the hell out of here, he says. And they beam away. Like, what a great, like, this is a great ending, you know? It's like, you, you can just tell, like, that's all, that's all we need to know about Kirk, right? He's not happy about the way things ended. He's not, he's not in a good place right now. No. Just get the hell out of here. And boom, they beam away. And what, what beautiful character moments we, you know, we, we don't get. Right? Over the next several days. Yeah. Well, funny you should mention that. <laughs> get to the end here. Because there is, uh, I mean, not that there aren't other great things about Ellison's script, but there's a really nice moment at the end here. Spock comes back to, or Spock comes into uh, Kirk's, Kirk's room, and, you know, he's kind of just checking on him. And the first thing he asks Kirk is, uh, Oh, because, oh, so, uh, sorry. So at the end of Ellison's episode, right, the way it ends is very different. They finally see Beckwith, and they start running after Beckwith, right? And so uh, they're chasing him down, blah, blah, blah. 
they meet this other homeless guy who who uh, was in the Battle of Verdun. It's kind of this weird plot point that happens, but and he ends up. Is he a Frenchman from the war? Did he win a bunch of medals? So Is he, he ends up getting the killed. He ends up ends up getting killed by Beckwith as well, and then Beckwith sees Keeler out in the middle of the road, and runs to stop him. But instead of it being Kirk who stops Beckwith from saving Keeler, it's Spock who stops Beckwith, right? Because he's the pragmatist. He's the one who's blah, blah, blah. So that's another one of the big different endings because it ends with Spock making the heroic gesture of heroic, I guess. Look, you can look at that either way. But, you know, Spock is the one who makes the big decision, like, we have to go out, and I, I'm the one who has to stop Beckwith from saving Keeler so that time can be as it is again. There's a couple things about that I'll get back to. But so we get this moment at the end of the script where Spock asks, like, why would Beckwith even, you know, bother? Like, if he's such a horrible person who killed this guy because of the drugs and whatnot. To which Kirk responds, and again, this is a nice little moment at the end of the Ellison script, he says, uh, we look at our race, this parade of men and women, and the unbelievably harm and cruelty that they do. And we sigh. And we say, perhaps we should, uh, perhaps our time has passed. Perhaps we should let the sharks or the cockroaches take over. And then, without even knowing why, without even thinking of it, the worst among us do great things, a noble deed, a spark of the impossible, of human godliness. So that's a nice little moment there at the end, at which uh, they then start talking about Edith, and then Kirk says, uh, I, I loved her. And this is the great moment, because Spock says this, no woman was ever loved as much, Jim, because no woman was ever offered the universe for her love. Like, that's like a great little wrap up there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's just like this amazing moment where you're like, okay, Spock kind of gets it. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're in a particular uh, limited problem, right? So the Guardian okay. of Forever has told them that they need to set history aright to go back to the, to get their timeline reset. Whereas... If this were the kind of an episode where the Enterprise, you know, flies around the sun, goes back in time, and they had all of their technology, they weren't, like, trying to work with stone knives and bearskins, there would have been what we might think of as the Star Trek Three solution. Let's, let's take Edith to where Edith belongs. Edith belongs in our timeline. Edith belongs in the future. She belongs right. in the 23rd century. And she can't be here because if she stays here, she's going to derail, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to fight Hitler. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll be bad. So let's just bring her to the, let's just put her back on the Enterprise and leave and bring her to the future. And, well, she can't raise whales, but, <laughs> but she's going to fit right in. But the Guardian doesn't give them that option. They're just taking you. <laughs> no. You go get her, find her, and bring her home. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Peavey says, uh, the director, he said, using hell in the last line was something of a problem. Mm -hmm. Kirk said, let's get the hell out of here. And there were objections from the network. But then right. Waddenberry had a meeting with them and said, hey, there's no other word that conveys the emotion of this moment. Right. 
of course, Bill Shatner fought for it as well. Mm -hmm. We wanted it because it sounded great. So right. finally, NBC said, uh, what the hell, leave it in. <laughs> they did say what the hell, didn't they? <laughs> yep. Also, this, uh, the production staff was heavily against Kirk's final inactivity. So that's part of the reason they didn't like Ellison's version as well, right? Is because Kirk, Kirk doesn't even do anything, you know? And so uh, the production staff seemed that they might be able to, his inability to decide and act, that viewers might never be able to accept him again as a strong leader figure in later episodes. Dun, 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 dun. So that's interesting. I thought that was fun. Before we leave the Guardian. Yep. It's the kind of a thing where they discover this thing and then they never talk about it again, right? Right. And you're like, well, that's weird. But in fact, they do. Because in the animated series, two years in the Star Trek timeline, two years later in 2269, yep. Kirk and Spock and a team of scientists come back to investigate firsthand the formation of the Orion civilization. And they're monitoring Vulcan history from the 2230s and 40s. And, and while they're doing this, they realize that nobody knows who Spock is, right? So Kirk and Spock come back through the Guardian after examining Orion civilization. And everyone else is like, oh, who'd you bring with you? And it's, Mr. Spock, what are you talking about? He's stuck in command. He's like, no, no. Uh, Commander so-and-so is up on the ship right now. <laughs> and Like, nobody knows who Spock is except for Kirk. Right? Okay. And they're like, what the hell happened? <laughs> what did we change in yep. the timeline? You know, he looks at the, at the thing, at the Guardian, he, and he, based on the time that it's showing and so forth, and he realizes... Apparently, I died when I was a boy. And so Spock goes back into the Guardian to save himself, right? And it's a, right. it's, it's a Spock-only episode. So it's Spock and Sarek and young Spock and Amanda. Yep. And it's on Vulcan. And it's got his pet uh, uh, Salat that... His mom says it's like a teddy bear in <laughs> Babel, but of course it's more like a saber-toothed tiger. It's a great episode. Yeah, it is a great episode. And it's one of the few that were always considered canon, even though you know, lots of people said, well, the animated series isn't canon. <laughs> right. So it's a, it's a great return to... Uh, yeah, and that's a great story. I remember that one. I think what happens is like the the Salak or whatever it is dies, right? And so yeah. little little Vulcan Spock doesn't know how to handle his emotions when it dies, and so he runs out into the desert. And it's dangerous yeah, it's out there. Fortunately, yeah. the the cousin who is passing through from far away <laughs> happened to be there. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> so. Now that you've heard, you know, some of the big differences between Harlan's script and, you know, what ended up on screen, it's hard to say whose script it was. It was because, like I said, 16 versions of it. You yeah. know, it's hard to, like, say any one person, like, wrote it. So but, uh, yes, exactly. Knowing the differences already, the giant nine feet tall people, the city, 
you know, the going back onto the Enterprise and, you know, it being a, a, a pirate camp. Oh, which, by the way, there's a scene where Rand and everybody on the ship dies because trying to hoard off the pirates from getting into the transporter room. As it was, as it was shot, took seven and a half days to film, cost $245,000. Oh, my God. Yes. The most costly episode of the original series ever. A staggering $60,000 over the per episode allowance. This equates to $1.7 million over. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, sorry. That's $1.7 million total to pay for that episode. Sorry. Uh, with an overage of $420,000. The first season deficit nearly doubled with this, going all the way up to $134,823. Why, why was it so expensive? Just It was just expensive. You know, it was that building those sets, having to go to Mayberry, you know, all of those things. Uh, uh, it, yeah. But at least Mayberry probably, existed. Yeah. Joe Collins probably cost a good hefty sum of money. Although I never saw anything on that. So uh, this is a really funny story. Robert Justman here. Harlan never forgave us for rewriting him. And out of spite, he submitted his original script to the Writers Guild of America and ended up winning an award for this script that's never been produced. Justman goes on. Coon Reinberry and I were all in attendance at the awards dinner. And as Ellison walks away from the podium with his award in one hand and his script in the other, he shook it at us, smirking as if to say, Aha, there, we'll show you. I, I looked at Gene. Who just... <laughs> exactly. I looked at Gene, who looked at me and just shrugged and said, Well, that's showbiz. We just laughed it off. But the funny part is, he wouldn't have won the award if they hadn't produced the episode right. <laughs> the way that they did. Well, so, the, like, if they would have tried, the there just would have been no way to produce the script. Yeah. And well, so, that's the other funny thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. And so, you know, Such to, a blood yeah. So, I mean, in a sense saying, well, they did it wrong. No, they just did it differently. They did it in a way that, that had to fit into the show. And that was not like, we're going to have to like invent camera tricks to, you know, to do this. <laughs> yeah. To make it adaptable. And so the funny yeah. thing for me, that that's the part I can't get over. I mean, He's written for TV before. He's got to know that there's like there are limitations to what yeah. they can do. He just never believed those limitations. That was part of the problem. You right. know, he was always like, "There's a way they could have done it." You know, and you're just like, "Okay." Now, this is the thing: is that I'm not crapping on a script, right? Because I've read the, yeah, I've, I've, I've read it. It's great. It's 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 incredible. But again, it's just not Star Trek. Not as you we know, know it. All, not as we know it. Yet. Or, exactly. Or produce or producible for a 1960s television show. That's the other, you know, big part of. It. I think that's the biggest thing. If you're going to get anything else out of this, that's the. Well, you know, after Batman ran, they made a Batman movie. Right. <laughs> it's almost like he's like, you guys should have had a movie in between seasons one and two. My movie. <laughs> exactly. So, as for the version that Rod Mary Coon and Fontana wrote, based on Ellison's story. As directed by Joseph Beatney, it won an International Hugo Award for Best Science Fiction Presentation of 1967. And it would be a whole other 25 years after that that uh, another television program received this honor, and that was a Star Trek Next Generation episode. Can you guess which one? No. The Inner Light. 
of course. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is just a quick list of like people who like said this is their like you know favorite episode, right? So we got Ryan Berry who uh, always said that it was his top ten favorite episodes from the original series. Uh, at the at the end of his life, for the quote last conversation, I don't know if that was a book or whatnot, but he picked it as his absolute favorite. DeForest Kelly also picked City as his favorite, saying, um, "I thought it was the best ensemble piece of work that captured a certain flavor and mood." Yeah. I thought it was one of the most dramatic endings that I had ever seen on a television show. And he got to do great stuff. Yep. Shatner went back and forth between this episode and Devil in the Dark as his favorite. Uh-huh. Uh, but did, in an interview with Joan Collins, say that City was his favorite of the original Star Trek series. I recommend so. watching the, the interview with Shatner and Joan Collins. They sit oh, yeah, down it's together. It's, it's, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. It's, it's, uh-huh. it's, uh, they're both old. And they yep. both remember it fondly. And it's obvious that those two have chemistry as yeah. they sit down and talk. Uh, they're, they're a lot of fun to watch together. And you know that that makes this show so much better. Yeah. That, that those two people have chemistry. Yeah, that they got on so well. Mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy picks it as his favorite. DC Fontana uh, named it as one of her two favorites. The other one was uh, The Trouble of Triples. Mm-hmm. 1994, Entertainment Weekly named it as its number one of all the Star Treks. Oh, I was going to tell you this too. Dang it. I should have kept going. So anyway, I was going to talk about yesteryear, like you, but, I let, but you went ahead and talked about it, which is cool. But do you know that The Guardian returned again in a novel based on the characters of Star Trek The Next Generation? No, I, I can totally it. believe that, yeah. It was it was one of our favorite books written by Peter <laughs> David <laughs> called oh. Imzadi, which we loved so much. Oh my goodness! Yes. Hopefully, everyone can hear the sarcasm dripping off your voice. <laughs> yes, I hope they can too. No one should ever read that book. Okay. So this, I thought this was the most. This is the greatest way for Harlan Ellison to end uh, to end this podcast. Which is, in another interview, Harlan Ellison once said, I have never loved that Star Trek. It's won awards and continues to be the most popular one. But my response is always, you should have read the original. It's a guy who can't let it go. No. No. And, you know, we can read the original. And that's one of the beautiful things is that we can end up with, like, like mythology in which you're like, well, wait, is it Apollo who gave the quest to the hero or is it is it uh hermes who gave the quest to the hero you can have like well there's like eight different versions of the story right you can yeah. read the original script you can read the script as modified by so and so you can read the script as modified by this other person you could continue to to you could take the ways we talked about the way you might have made it work in a slightly different you know way yeah they're all good yeah they're all good. And so here's the funny, I mean, so that's the thing. Is It's like, again, I like the script. I think the original script's great. I like the Star Trek version as well. In fact, yeah. there are some things I like way better about it. I kind of like the ending better. I, I, I like that. Because in Ellison's version two, they like, I can't remember. Oh, actually, you know, this is actually really creative in Ellison's version is the Guardian speaks in parables and so doesn't exactly let them know, you know, that Edith is the focal point but does give them stuff about like a son 
in the blue sky or, you know, something like that. And then the first time Spock hears Edith one night talking about, you know, the sun and the sky and blah, blah, blah. And she's wearing a sun brooch and wearing a blue like cape. So it's kind of interesting because that's how he like figures it out. So that's kind of different and kind of neat. I like that too. So see, there's stuff in both sides that I think is really, uh, yeah. is really cool. So uh, I, I found the comic, I found the comic a few months ago, so I don't know if it's still the same, but I found the comic for like 10 bucks on Amazon for all five issues. So if you want to do your own homework, uh, folks watching and listening as well as you can, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon for like 10 bucks. Also, like I said, I, I, I saw it at Half Price Books the other day. They had the Harlan Ellison book that also had the screenplay in it as well. So go do your own judgment on it. Don't just listen to us. What do we know? We're just two guys who like Star Trek. <laughs> Oh, one more thing. Since we're uh, talking about, we're getting. I'm going to talk about next week. Operation Annihilate, right? That'll end the season. That'll wrap up season one for us. That's going to be exciting. Though you know, if they were doing Star Trek nowadays, they would have ended on the city of the edge of forever, right? Gone, ended the season on a big bang. Like, oh boy, wait till you see this episode. It's going to be the big one. But uh, nope, we end with Operation Annihilate. So. <laughs> What a way to go out of the season. Um, I have done my due diligence and talked about this episode to death. Anything else you have to say, Ken? Nope, I think we got it. I think we hit it all, too. I'm excited. Well, that wraps up this episode. Like I said, Operation Annihilate next week. We get to find out about Kirk's brother. Uh-oh. And uh, we get to see some new different kind of monsters that uh, the crew gets to fight. So that's exciting. That's it. I love it. Subscribe, like us, enjoy us. Do all those things that people tell you to do and keep doing it for us because it only makes this a lot more fun with a bunch more people. That's it. I'm Matt saying goodbye. This is also Ken saying goodbye. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go. Perfect. And we will see you all next week.